So we need to address the fact that you just called me out on the internet. Go ahead. Address it. <laughs> you called me out first. I you didn't call me out first. You're my hero. You, no, you won. You sat there and sipped your tea for 10 seconds out of your 30-second video. I got destroyed. I've never loved you more. I'm so proud. <laughs> This is why our partnership works, is you took that for exactly the goof it was meant to be. (laughs) You look so official in your new setup. Thank you. So my new microphone came in. You'll probably not hear a difference as a listener, but (laughs) (laughs) I feel so much more official as a podcaster. And um, it is... I'm going to call it out because I'm so proud. It is the Blue Yeti Yeti caster. It's got a fancy arm and a shock mount. And I think this means that we can never stop podcasting or I have to take up voice acting because this is way too fancy for me to only use when I video chat my family. Well, for one, you can have all of those things. That's true. (laughs) I can truly have it all. We're not planning on stopping anytime soon, so I think you're good to go. Good, because this microphone was not um, cheap, so we have to do this forever. (laughs) (laughs) When have we ever stopped something we started, though? That's not in our DNA. I don't think. That's Yeah, that's true. I was going to be like, all the time, but really, if I'm like... Well, you know what? Here's the the true answer. Whenever I commit to exercising. Mm. Okay, but we don't exercise together, so it's not the combination of our wills. That's true. That is true, actually. I feel like if I had had you holding me accountable to exercising, I would do it a lot more. Hey, can you text me every day and yell at me to exercise? Definitely not. I am <laughs> not exercising too much either uh, lately. Yeah, so. I bought a an exercise bike that I have in my bedroom that I have to look at every day. I have not used it the last two days because I have been... Yesterday, I was like, you know, I've earned a day off. And today, I just was insanely busy with work. And then also decided that because I was insanely busy with work, I earned another day off. So I have to exercise after we record is the moral of that story. I thought exercise bikes in the home were just fancy clothing racks for clothing that isn't quite dirty, but also isn't exactly clean. Yeah, so here's the thing. It's only I've only had it for like a week. So give talk to me again in a few months. Okay. Okay. How long have we been in quarantine now? Four months? A third of the year? I don't know. Is it is it still March? Because I think it's still I think it's still March. No, it's definitely mid July. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Hold on. We actually started this project in March, right? We started working on it. Yes. It didn't go live until June, I think. We put the first teaser live at the last few days of May. Okay. So we've been working on this for just under five months. Oh, my God. You think we'd be better at it, huh? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And that's the tea. (laughs) Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, why stories have staying power, and we are doing our best. We're certainly doing our best. And honestly, that's all we can ask for. That's all you can ask for. Don't ask for more. That's greedy. Don't do that. Right. Okay. No more. (laughs) 
love the way you said that. Like you were just convincing yourself more than anyone else. You're like, right, 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 right. I can only give my best. That's all I got. Okay, no more. <laughs> Cap it at my best. Cap it there. <laughs> I don't remember who said this to me, but someone, I was saying, you know, doing my best as a young person. And someone said to me, don't do your best, do my best. Woo. Oof. <laughs> God, way to give a kid a complex. Oh, this kid has a complex. Oh, shoot. I'm an adult now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm a grown person. I know. Sometimes it hits me, especially now that I have, like, a mortgage and stuff. Ugh. Hmm. That's exciting. I still haven't seen your house. Thank you, quarantine. It's okay. Yeah, I bought it, and then a week later, quarantine started, so very few people have seen my house. I know about as much about your house as the listeners of our podcast do. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, maybe someday I'll do a house tour. No one cares. It's not an exciting house. It's a tiny townhouse. I like your house. Well, the one yellow chair that I've seen and your podcast setup and your cat. I love my cat. We have not... Can we take a moment? We have not talked about my cat enough on this podcast. Sure. And it's really important that we do. We um, probably should because I just discovered you have an Instagram for your cat. (laughs) I haven't updated it in like a year. I almost broke up with you. Friend broke up with you. It was almost over for us. Because I hadn't updated it? No. No, because you have an Instagram for your cat. (laughs) I have no shame. I know what I know. I'm a white suburban girl with a cat. Like, what, what else was I going to do? Not make an Instagram for my cat? That wasn't an option. I'm being so aggressive about it. But also, I love your cat. And I don't get to see your cat very <laughs> often. So. so let's talk about your cat. Tracy, how did you get your cat? Okay, long story short, we, we, we can do a whole episode about my cat Lola, but who is passed out on the couch behind me? Um, I went to a shelter to try and get a different cat or just to look at a different cat that I was interested in. And I told the woman I wanted a really friendly and social cat. And she goes, oh, you want Lola, who was laying on the ground next to me, totally chill. So I got her and she is the best. She's a freak of nature. She loves every single person, cat, dog, child she's ever met. Every new person's her new favorite person. She greets everyone at the door. She loves to play. She gets along with my sister's dog. She's just such a lap cat, wants to sit in everyone's lap and lick their face. Um, Just an absolute love and a joy and an idiot. She's really dumb. (laughs) As big as her heart is, her brain is dumb and small. So um, I love her very, very, very much. She's my sweet baby. I'm so allergic to her, and I still stick my face in her face every time I see her because she's so sweet. Although... She's so sweet. The first time I ever met Lola... I was staying at your apartment, your old apartment with you. And that night, you warned me that she was going to do this. But she got the zoomies in the middle of the night and ran across the bed full speed, (laughs) which meant she was running across my stomach at full speed. And I woke up from a dead sleep in a panic. And I yelled at her and I don't think she cared because she did it again. She has gotten so much better about that. I have very cold-heartedly picked her up and thrown her from the bed enough times in the middle of the night that she knows when it's nighttime and I, I go to sleep, she has to just chill for that whole time. And she so I sleep through the night now. She's gotten so much better. Rowan saw her, God, maybe 
a month or two after I got her when she didn't understand what it meant to live with a person. I hadn't, didn't know what it meant to live with a cat. Um, I grew up with a cat and a dog. I love, I love dogs. Dogs are my, my, my special babies, but, um, God, now this cat has made me like cats. <sighs> I guess I like, you know, cats and dogs now, but anyway, she's gotten better about that is the moral of that story. <laughs> I'm going to circle us back to doing our best because we just dropped our episode on wrath Mm -hmm. and people keep messaging me about my lian shi myth asking me if i wrote it if i wrote my telling of it which i think is very flattering that people think that it was someone else's writing i'm going to take it as a compliment but i just want to go on record since people are asking me so much that I've gotten it actually a couple times of like, where did you get the source of like, where did you find that story? I'd love to go read it. Like, um, I can give you the Google Doc that I wrote or not. It, those are filled with spelling errors, at least on my part. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But we try to be very specific when we're quoting within our stories. So unless otherwise noted, we wrote them. They are our retelling of stories that exist in the world. Yeah, that's why Rowan stays up until four in the morning, like a panicked, desperate writer <laughs> in the 20s, staring down at their typewriter with a cigarette in one hand and a whiskey in the other. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> my mom called me, and my parents were asking about how much of that story was based on my life. <laughs> and my mom... <laughs> said that I should always stay up until 3 a.m. Because <laughs> she liked that story. <laughs> Apparently, I produced my best work at 3 a.m. I wrote this story during broad daylight, though, so we'll see. Um, I wrote this story over a couple of nights, and at one point while working on it, I was literally sitting in my loft spinning in my chair because I was so like mentally blocked on how to frame and tell this story. And Tim, my sister's boyfriend, who my sister and her boyfriend now live with me, so you'll hear me talk about Jamie and Tim all the time. Tim came upstairs and was just chatting with me, and I told him what I was researching. And this guy, historian that he is, boom, 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 comes up with fact after fact after fact. Half of them were stuff it took me like an hour and a half to research and understand. And he just goes like, boom, 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 boom. Did you know this, 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 and this? So um, there's a section of my history of my story that is literally just quotes from Tim that I will be talking about. I love that. It takes me an inordinate amount of time to research these myths because I just fall down the rabbit hole. I just find more and more and then my brain short circuits. I don't know if you do this, but the hardest thing for me is to see it written out in a, an article or text or whatever it is so perfectly but I don't want to copy and paste like I don't want to just read copied stuff to our listeners I want to reword it and reframe it so then I struggle because if I reframe it too much am I actually getting the right context across but if I don't reframe it I'm just plagiarizing from this website and copying it into our podcast and so honestly that's one of the hardest parts for me is how do I translate the information correctly in a way that can be narrative and or explain 
what it is that I'm talking about without copying. Yes, I think that's a constant struggle. When I get stuck in that place, I try to think of myself as a bard. (laughs) Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I, I don't know how much it works, but here we are. This week in particular, I struggled because a lot of the information on the internet was the same information, you know, from different sources, which is always an adventure. But then I found some really great YouTube videos, and here we are. So. All right, so let's get started. This week, we'll be diving into stories that encompass the sin of lust. To quote DeadlySins.com, Lust is an inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body. Jesus described the sin of lust as adultery of the heart, according to Matthew 5.28. And this may be a more accurate description of the dangers of lust. We succumb to our basest desires, mind, body, or soul, and in doing so, we may leave behind what makes us us. (laughs) (laughs) A quick heads up before we dive into the content of this episode. We're going to touch on the topics of sex, genitalia, and sexual assault, among other similar subject matter, so please listen at your own discretion. What's your story this week, Tracy? Because I think this week we did not discuss what we were doing at all. No, I... I knew from when we came up with our story outline that I wanted to touch on the story that I did this week. I actually went a slightly different direction. So my original plan was to tell the story of the Iliad. I realized that telling the whole story of the Iliad, one, we don't that 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 we don't have time for. That would be a Tracy's only episode. Rowan would not get a chance to talk. You could do a multi-part. I could, but what I decided for at least this week was to talk about what kicked off the Iliad. Because that's the part that relates to the idea of lust. So I'm going to talk about Paris and Helen of Troy. Mm. (laughs) I'm excited. I also took a page from Rowan's book, so you'll notice my storytelling's a little different this week. Ooh, okay. Bring it. (laughs) If I had known then what I know now, that tossing a golden apple from the Garden of Hesperides would cause a war that would last for ten years and cost thousands of men their lives. Would I make the same decision? Yes, without a second thought. After all, I am Eris, goddess of chaos, and few things please me more than using the gods' own flaws, though they claim to have none, against them. Their obsession with themselves is an easy one to exploit, so when I found out that Zeus held a banquet in honor of the marriage of Peleus and Thetis, and the great goddess that I am was not invited, well, I knew something had to be done. I just didn't know it would be so easy. All I had to do was toss that golden apple onto the ground and tell them that the apple belonged to the fairest one of all. Well, Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite took the bait without question. They asked Zeus to be the judge, but he was cowardly and afraid of angering the goddesses, so he passed the job off to a mortal. Paris, 
a Trojan mortal who found favor with Zeus, was to judge the trio of goddesses and declare unto whom he would bestow the golden apple. This next part, the part where the goddesses fawn over Paris and beg, bribe, and barter with him to please choose them, that will be immortalized in art for centuries to come. So really, you're welcome. For without me, you wouldn't have any paintings of so many beautiful naked women to admire, artfully, in your museums. The goddesses were brought in front of Paris to be judged, but alas, they were far too... covered to be properly assessed. So they each stripped off their clothes so they could convince Paris of their worthiness. Staring down at the naked women, Paris was unable to choose... So they began to bribe him, each in their own way. Hera, queen of the gods, offered to make him king of Europe and Asia. But Paris wasn't tempted by power. Athena offered him skill in war, but he wasn't interested in fighting. He was just a shepherd, after all. Aphrodite offered him the world's most beautiful woman. Now this... This was tempting to Paris. Power and prestige meant little to him but a woman. That was an offer he could entertain. Blinded as he was by desire, Paris chose Aphrodite as the most beautiful of the goddesses. <laughs> I couldn't have planned it better if I tried. You see, the most beautiful woman in the world was Helen of Sparta, wife of King Menelaus and daughter of Zeus and Leda, or perhaps Zeus and Nemesis. I'm not really sure, and frankly, I don't care to know, because what really matters is that from the moment of her birth, Helen was destined to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Her brothers, Castor and Polydeuces, known as the Dioscuri, became the divine protectors of sailors at sea, while Helen and her sister Clytemnestra would play an important role in the Trojan War. Even as a young girl, Helen's beauty was widely known. So much so that the hero, Theseus, simply needed to have her as a bride. Men can be so helpless to their own desires, wouldn't you agree? Anyway, desperate, Theseus kidnapped Helen and hid her in Athens, but... Eventually, she was rescued by her brothers and brought safely home. She was pursued by many suitors over the years, all of whom she rejected, except Menelaus, king of Sparta. Though she was unsure of her love for him, he was wealthy, valiant, and devoted to her. So for a time, she remained faithful and loyal to her husband, until she met Paris, after his judgment, Paris traveled to Sparta in the guise of a diplomatic mission, and in the Grand Hall of Menelaus he saw Helen for the first time. Porcelain white skin was framed by long, flowing hair that seemed to change color in the candlelight. One moment it was golden like the sun, the next it was vibrant as copper where the shadows were dark as night. Her eyes were wide, round and impossibly bright as they met Paris's, and her soft pink lips curved into a smile. Thousands of men would die for that smile. 
or so history would have you believe. If you ask me, I say it's much simpler than that. Thousands of men died because two men wanted the same woman regardless of what she wanted. If her smile launched a thousand ships, her husband and her lover executed the sailors. But what do I know? I'm hardly in this story. Some say Paris stole Helen away because he was so desperate to have her. But the truth is much more fun than that. Yes, artists will go on to paint the rape of Helen in many of their works of art, but that's not nearly as satisfying as the truth. The truth is that Helen chose to leave. You see? Isn't that more interesting? Instead of being the weak object of the story like she became known in your history books, she was really quite the active participant. She fell for Paris nearly as hard as he fell for her, and they escaped together. So in love was Helen that she abandoned all that she held dear only a day before. If you ask me, the writer Sappho put it best. Some say a host of horsemen, others of infantry and others of ships is the most beautiful thing on the dark earth, but I say it is what you love. Full easy is it to make this understood one and all, for she that far surpassed all mortals in beauty... Helen, her most noble husband, deserted and went sailing to Troy with never a thought for her daughter and dear parents. See, that's why it's so easy to trick mortals. At the end of the day, despite their protest and their morals, they all want one thing. Call it love, call it lust, call it desire. They all want to be known and consumed by their knowing. Paris took Helen by the hand, and together they escaped back to Troy, leaving a trail of bodies following shortly behind. While they lay together, contented, happy, in love, her husband Menelaus was crafting a plan. Having convinced his brother Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, to lead an expedition to retrieve Helen, who had so wrongly been stolen from him clearly against her will, Agamemnon, Achilles, Odysseus, Nestor and Ajax, all with a fleet of 1,000 ships, sailed across the Aegean Sea to lay siege to Troy and demand Helen be returned to them. But their demand was met with the refusal, and that refusal began the war that lasted for ten years. Ten long, deadly years that only ended when a wooden horse was offered to the Trojans. <laughs> but that is a very fun story, one that deserves to be told all on its own. For now, I leave you with this. If you were me, would you have thrown the apple? And that is the story of Helen of Troy and Paris. Isn't it so satisfying telling your story in first person? Yes, and it was so much more fun to write. I could just write it from the perspective of sassy, of a sassy goddess of chaos. That was so good, Tracy. <laughs> Thank you. It was really fun. It was really, really fun. A totally different experience because I'm used to just writing things fairly factually. I, I don't think I ever would have let myself get that creative with it if you hadn't just jumped headfirst into being very, very creative. Funnily enough, my story this week is the opposite. I'm writing it in third person very factually. So anyway. Oh my god, it's almost like we compliment each other and we've learned from each other on how to be diverse storytellers. Ew, stop. 
<laughs> Ew, stop making me grow as a person. <laughs> Ew, feelings. I <laughs> thought I was very familiar with this story, but actually I did not know that Eris was the one who originated it with the apple. I never yeah. really thought about yep. why Paris was judging the goddesses. I guess I just joined the story part of the way through. Yeah, and I didn't include it in, in my telling. Um, but one of the versions of the story is that Paris... So Paris is the son of the king of Troy, but there was a prophecy about his birth, and so he was taken away and raised as a shepherd. And there's a story about Zeus... Oh, God, I'm not going to get the details right, so forgive me. But Zeus pretending to be a bull. Maybe it wasn't he Zeus, was but another He was a swan god. when he slept with Leda. Oh, sorry, yes. that's for Helen. I apologize. Yeah, no, but that's true. Um, uh, so basically, uh, Paris lost this bet and handled it really gracefully. And so Zeus was like, this guy's cool. He can be the judge. Oh, so that's one version of it. There's also like TV shows that have it where he just, I watched one TV show where he stumbled in the woods and the goddesses were just there. And I think they were just holding the apple and they're like, hmm, Paris, you're great. Judge us. No. But um, <laughs> it was very much described as them stripping down naked and like 1400s to mid 1500s artists loved that there are so many paintings of that and some articles i read were like yeah it was their excuse to be intelligent and paint naked women that's what the <laughs> myths are for you remember the furies they could either be ugly and scary or super hot naked women and in paintings yeah yeah and and there are some versions of the story there was actually a few versions of of this story um one where she goes to egypt there's a whole egypt version there's a whole other version where she early on was written as an active participant as opposed to being abducted but you know history at the time preferred the version where she was abducted and stolen away and so there is also a ton of art of that of paris stealing helen away from her beloved husband where she would desperately want to be but I mean, like, it's clear that I felt in my story. I was going to ask you about how many stories have her being a willing participant because, you know, you hear the version about her being unwilling more often. It was nice to hear the quote from Sappho. Thank you for including that. Yeah, I, I had to as soon as I saw it. Oh, yeah. When you stumble across that text, you have oh, to. Oh, when you stumble across a great quote and you're like, yeah, got to do it. <laughs> Most versions um, are fairly, fairly ambivalent, to be completely honest. There is one or two where Helen is described as actively going away, actively leaving behind to be with Paris. Most just describe Helen being there, Paris leaving with her. They don't talk about how or why she left. And so history kind of just went, well, clearly he abducted her and... You know, there's, I have a whole section here about, like, she is such an example of the Madonna whore complex of she's this beautiful, lovely mother, and she got stolen away, or she's this horrible person, and, and she's gotten a bad rap throughout history. I mean, this story was written thousands of years ago, and we still talk about Helen, and she's, like, 
I, I have some fun quotes. Hold on. I have to jump into, the, into this section. I'm going to skip ahead. When, well, I'll just say while you're skip ahead in my notes, you're getting ready for your notes that your inclusion that if Helen launched the ships, the men killed the soldiers feels so accurate to me. Thank you. That was totally me. It pisses me off that everyone's like, it's Helen's fault. She's the one who started the war. No, she did not. It was her husband and her lover who were fighting and refusing to come to any agreements who started the war. So thank you. That that was me just being very annoyed at Helen's reputation throughout history. And that's why we have divorce court today. So a thousand soldiers do not need to die for your marriage to end. <laughs> Yes. What a gift. Okay, so this is some of my research on Helen's legacy. Uh, So depending on the author, you might get a wildly different version of Helen. Sometimes she's weak and scared. Other times she's bold and decisive. She is a beautiful canvas upon which each author can bestow a personality that fits their telling. Despite this, or perhaps because of it, like I said, Helen gets a really bad rap throughout history. To quote History Today, And so Euripides calls her a bitch whore. She is Shakespeare's strumpet. In Thomas Proctor's The Reward of Whoredom by the Fall of Helen, 1578, she is a troll and a flirt, an embodiment of prostitution's vile, filthy fact. Chaucer might well have been playing on words when he called her a queen, a homophone for queen or harlot, And for Schiller, a Helen simply meant a prick tease, a tart, or a slut. Poor Helen is either a whimpering woman whisked away without consent or a horrible whore who condemned a nation. The woman can't catch a break, literally no matter how many thousands of years it's been. How much of the term the Hellenistic Greeks is related (gasps) to Helen's name? A lot. So this is jumping into my conversation with Tim. Helen, the name, is derived from the words the Greek used to identify themselves, Hellenes. It's no coincidence that we describe the ancient Greeks as Hellenistic, though it probably makes more sense for Helen to have been named for what the Greeks were already calling themselves when Homer wrote the story, given that her, quote, kidnapping was considered a slight against what Homer would have thought of as the Greeks, because when the Persians invaded Anatolia, that pretty much ended the Lydian Greeks, typically identified with the Trojans. So while the Trojans were also Greek with the same god and culture, they were Lydian, while Homer thought of himself as Hellenistic. However, I want to be clear, at the time of the Trojan War, no one really thought of themselves as Greek, They were Spartan, Mycenaean, Trojan, etc. It's only from Homer's later perspective that we see a unified Greek culture in the Trojan War story. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't either until Tim came upstairs, spat some wisdom, and then walked back downstairs. That's stellar. Yeah. So um, it is the name Helen is very much tied to Hellenistic Greek. And the idea of being Greek. So it's not the same thing as states warring in the combined United States. It is more as if the U.S. is warring with a foreign nation when 
the Mycenaeans fight with the Spartans or the Trojans or whomever. Yeah, I think a good way to think of it, I don't know, as best as I can come up with on the spot is when America was new and warring for independence with England, similar cultures, but we were America and they were England. Hmm. And it was totally different and eventually grew to be different. Um, It's not the best analogy, but at the time of the Trojan War, they wouldn't have been like, well, we're all Greek, but you're from Sparta and you're from... It it was like, I'm Spartan and you're Athenian and we are different, even though they did have a baseline, same kind of similar religions and gods and cultures. I remember when we studied the Greeks in high school, we had this silly quiz that you would take to figure out which <gasps> I remember this which Greek city state yes. you would have been in what did you get I don't remember what I got but I can bet that you got Athenian <laughs> yes I did I don't remember what I got I probably would have been Athens you would have been Athens at the time I probably would have wanted Sparta Oh, yeah. At the time, you would have wanted Sparta. You would have wanted to be the fiercest one. You're probably right. I'd be in Athens with you. I don't know. We can go to Mycenae. That'd be nice. Um, So jumping back to some history, one of my favorite facts about the Iliad is that it was probably written by Homer, and the terminus ante quem, a fancy term I learned while researching, which means the latest possible dating. So the latest possible dating for the Iliad is 630 B.C., But the story itself takes place sometime in the early 12th century BC during the Bronze Age, which means that Homer, an ancient Greek, was writing a story about what to him were the ancient Greeks. (laughs) I just think that's such a cool fact that I don't think I was taught in history. If I was, I wasn't taught well enough to remember. No, no, certainly. In my memory of our learning about the Greeks in school, Greek ancient greek didn't have a timeline that stretched out so far that there were ancient ancient greeks right in the even though they gave us dates so probably that was just us not putting it together that's all right 10 years later i figured it out so the story of troy was written about 400 years after it was said to have occurred and as always to quote wikipedia the iliad is paired with something of a sequel the Odyssey, also attributed to Homer. Along with the Odyssey, the Iliad is among the oldest extant works of Western literature, and its written version is usually dated to around the 8th century BC. In the modern Vulgate, the standard accepted version, the Iliad contains 15,693 lines. It is written in Homeric Greek, a literary amalgam of Ionic Greek and other dialects. So that's a quote from Wikipedia, just some facts about the Iliad. The other fun thing I just want to mention, because I think it's very, I don't know, I think it's silly. Have you heard of the Aeneid? Yes. Yeah, that's, that is Rome and, and the Latin, the Roman culture going, man, the Greeks are good. They have that great epic. We should have one too. You know what? We have one too. We're, we're just like the, the Greeks. They're so great. We're just like them. So we're just going to, We have the Aeneid now, and we're definitely not copy-pasting their entire culture and religion into something similar but slightly different. Um, And so that's the Aeneid, which is like a forking off of the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Aeneid as a copy-pasta. 
you need it as a coffee pasta. Um, but even, you know, Tim was telling me that the Romans valued the Greek culture above even their own. And so to them. Really? Yeah. It, they thought they were still superior. So to study, to be educated, you studied Greek and you studied the Grecian stories and mythology and philosophy. So we're really educated by Roman standards. Oh, my God. We're so stupid by Roman standards. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. No, no, no. Let me have it. Let me have the dream. <laughs> okay. Yes. We're so educated. <laughs> so these are the fun facts that I get to learn now that I live with a historian. That's pretty awesome. No, wait. Sorry. I missed an opportunity. That's pretty epic. <laughs> Thank you for correcting that uh, mm. grave mistake. <laughs> the last thing I want to touch on is something near and dear to my heart. Archaeology. This is about how we discovered Troy. To quote the UNESCO Foundation, because Troy is now considered a UNESCO World Heritage Site, Troy is located on the Mound of Hislerik, which overlooks the plain along the Turkish Aegean coast 4.8 kilometers from the southern entrance to the Dardanelles. The famous archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann undertook the first excavations to the site in 1870, and those excavations could be considered the starting point of modern archaeology and its public recognition. So, good job, Heinrich Schleiman, who claims that when he was eight, his father sat him down and told him the story of the Iliad, and it inspired in him such a strong passion in archaeology that he had to go and find the real existence of Troy, Tyrans, and Mycenae. Except that was kind of BS. Yeah, that sounds like editing in post. It's <laughs> exactly what it was. So uh, according to David Trail's 1995 biography, Schleiman of Troy, Treasure and Deceit, and then bolstered by Susan Hewick Allen's 1999 book, Finding the Walls of Troy, Frank Calvert and Heinrich Schleiman, none of this was true. It was a fake story made up by Schleiman to boost his own image, ego, and public persona. He didn't even seriously engage in archaeology until he was in his mid-40s. Despite these lies, he did find Troy. He was a successful archaeologist who did engage enough interest from the community that they started looking for clues in the Iliad, and eventually, they found Troy. So, con man or not... You can't argue with the results that we discovered the lost city. I wouldn't go so far as to call him a con man as much. I'm just going to say he had a good publicist. <laughs> Some people go so far as to call him a con man. I don't have the strongest opinion one way or the other. I think he probably wasn't the best dude, but they found Troy. I also think this is a really good example of people who decide they want to do something in their mid to late life can still be wildly successful at it. Yes, it helps when you're super wealthy and can go on those cool old-timey archaeological digs funded by a fancy person. Ah, uh, yes, privilege. <laughs> uh, yeah. You are not wrong. Yeah, privilege helps, doesn't it? But I'm going to say it anyway, that any human can change their life and do what they really want to do at a different 
age. At, you don't have to know what you want to do in your 20s, is my Oh point. my god, absolutely. Yeah, uh, completely, completely agree. And, uh, I mean, it helps to be a rich, white archaeologist, but I'm trying to be uplifting here. <laughs> Oof. I won't bring it back down. No, no, you're right. <laughs> that was the story of Helen and Paris and the start of the Trojan War. I want to hear the story that you're bringing this week because I know nothing. I don't even know what it's about. I didn't look ahead. I kept it. I kept I kept my eyes away from it. Are you looking for a way to show someone that you care while still remaining socially distant? Why not send them a care package? Diamond Jewelry works with people and small businesses to create individualized care packages for any occasion. Starting at only $25, you can tell them what the occasion is, any specifics about the person it's for, and Boom, they create the custom care package of your dreams. They'll even include a mask to help people stay safe from coronavirus. That is so cool. These care packages, guys, can include anything from jewelry to socks, candy, hats, scarves, books, puzzles, candles, and so much more. When Tracy surprised me out of the blue and sent me one of these care packages at the beginning of quarantine, my favorite two things were this amazing smelling candle and a tea that I am still trying to make last because I love it so much. <laughs> what did you tell them about me to have them send like the exact right things? It was so simple. I told them that you love vanilla yep. and that you really love to curl up and be really cozy. And so they took that and, and knew that it meant that candle and tea was the perfect combination for you. At this point, everyone in my family will send out care packages for pretty much any occasion, including housewarmings, birthdays, get well soon baskets, engagements, baby showers, and so much more. We love diamond jewelry care packages. So tell someone that you love, that you love them by sending a diamond jewelry care package. That's D-I-A-M-E-N-T jewelry.com or diamond jewelry on Instagram. And don't forget to use the code WILLINGANDFABLE10 to get 10% off your order. Friends, be cool like Tracy. Send a diamond jewelry care package. To me. <laughs> Can I actually ask one more Helen question? Oh, God, yes, please. Yeah, I could talk about it forever. How canon was it that she was an ultra-pale blonde and or redhead, and how much of that was later artwork? Such a good question, because I, I struggled when writing it. I was like, how do I physically describe her? Because she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, all Homer wrote was that she was basically like porcelain pale skin and long flowing hair done up in tresses. That's it. So paintings especially those in like the medieval to renaissance typically showed her as brunette but since we've gotten into more modern times she's almost exclusively shown as blonde it's so interesting to think about the way that her beauty her incredible beauty has been translated through time based on which artists 
mm-hmm. have access to that story are revered. Yeah, I struggled really hard with how do I describe her? Because I didn't want to give her like she had beautiful brown hair and green eyes, which I could have done. I mean, I absolutely could have done, but I wanted it you to be. You just didn't want to do that because you have beautiful brown hair and green <laughs> eyes. Uh, well, that would have, yeah, that would have seemed um, egotistical. But the, the real reason I didn't want to give her any concrete features was I wanted it to be the eye of the beholder. I wanted you to imagine her the way you imagined it, the most beautiful one in the world. So that's why I said her hair seemed to change colors depending on the light. So you could decide what color it really was. Um, I just described her eyes as wide and bright. Um, and then I threw in the idea of like the pink lips just being healthy and, and rosy. And of course, Homer's porcelain skin. And Homer's porcelain skin. I had to add that in. I definitely want a modern telling of this story that makes Helen not a white blonde woman. I want to see that evolve. I also, on another note, <laughs> would love to see just a total fanfic of Helen escaping with a escaping, leaving with a female or non-binary Paris. Oh, could you imagine a version where Paris is a woman disguised as a man and Helen knows it, but like no one else does. And then they fall in love and sneak off together. Ooh, the Shakespeare version. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Oh, God, I would love that. How cool would that be? Or even just a non-binary Paris would be awesome. We could go into a deep rabbit hole about how cool a diverse version of this story would be. But until Hollywood stops being a coward, we'll have to write our own fan fiction. I bet it's out there. I bet we could find it. Listeners, please give us that sweet, sweet Helen of Troy fanfic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Any other questions? No, no, no. That was my burning question. (laughs) No, I'm so glad you asked it because I actually did research into that and totally forgot to bring it up. All right. So you don't know my story at all, which is probably for the best. And you'll learn that shortly. When I was researching for this episode, I went on a hunt to find a story about lust that doesn't completely center around women as sexual objects. And don't get me wrong, (laughs) this story does have some of that. (laughs) But we are mostly focusing on a man this week. He is the Divine Madman. I am so intrigued. You have no idea. Okay. I'll go into history later, but there are two things that I want you to know before I tell today's story. First, many of the words I'm using today come... I believe, from the Tibeto-Burman language family. I am going to do my utmost to get them correct, but if I say anything wrong, please refer to native Bhutanese language speakers for the correct pronunciations. Second, a quick definition for anyone who is unfamiliar. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, a lama is, in Tibetan Buddhism, a spiritual leader, originally used to translate guru, in Sanskrit, venerable one, and thus applicable only to heads of monasteries or great teachers. The term is now extended out of courtesy to any respected monk or priest. 
I had known that the word llama meant like spiritual teacher, but beyond that, I didn't know all those details. So that's really, that's helpful for me to learn. Yeah. So there you go. And now for my story. In the 15th century lived a man whose reputation lives on today. He's described as a holy fool, a beggar, a Lothario, a drunk. Known as the Divine Madman and the saint of 5,000 women, he is Drukpa Kunli, a lama who spread Buddhist teachings in unusual ways. One day, Drukpa Kunli shot an arrow from Tibet to mark the place where he would spread his teachings. The arrow landed in the land of the Thunder Dragon, or Bhutan. On his journey to find the arrow, he met many new people, including one young woman who truly understood his cause. He was so pleased to be recognized, to have loyalty. So he lay with her one night to bless her with fertility and children. She was the first of many. Now, in the kingdom of Bhutan, the Lama began to learn that the clergy was incredibly strict, and the culture of the surrounding villages mirrored that religious teaching. This is when he became known as the Divine Madman. His goal was to shock people into questioning the establishment and traditions so that they might make free choices that led them to true enlightenment. His sermons were delivered, helped along by humor and wine. His poetry was risque, and yes, he put in the work to bless 5,000 women with his flaming thunderbolt of wisdom. I know, I know this is genuine history. Like, I know this is a genuine story, but that does sound like it was something that a 14-year-old boy would write as, like, like online on an, on an online forum. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. I need you. I need you to keep it together because it's only going to get worse. <laughs> I'm trying to be respectful. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not crying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. I'll get it together. Okay. All right. You're good. You're good. Go ahead. I have to say penis a lot today, so I need you to... <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm good. Just keep talking. Just don't look at me. <laughs> but how did his penis gain that name, you ask? <laughs> how did... But how did his penis gain that name, you ask? Well, the story leaves some to the imagination, but the name was born here. At this time, the land was filled with horrifying ghosts and demons that fed on the flesh of mortals. They particularly liked to guard the passes between mountains, knowing that people must travel through them or else risk the dangerous peaks. Guarding the Doshila Pass, resided the Loro Duem, a demoness who terrorized those who lived nearby. But Drukpa Kunli knew how to deal with women. He chased her from the pass, and she fled, shocked that a living man would try to face her. Outside her mountainous home, she desperately transformed herself into a red dog, hoping to blend in with the mortal world. 
but Kunli would not be tricked. He recognized her instantly, killed her in ways not exactly described. Keep in mind, this is the story where it said his genitalia got the name Flaming Thunderbolt of Wisdom. But he buried her in a mound that looked like two breasts. Over this land, he built a black shrine called a chorten or stupa to ensure that she would not rise again. On the site of the Lama's victory, Kunli's cousin built the Chimilakong Monastery, or No Dog Temple. Today, this holy site of fertility is home to a 10-inch phallic totem carved from wood and ivory. Drukpa Kunli truly sought to teach the world that one could achieve enlightenment without living a celibate life, that there were many ways to discover that enlightenment and there was fun to be had while living a good life. He was one of the only Buddhist saints to appear topless and was known to touch his penis to the heads of people who needed healing. In line with his vision, Drukpa Kunli made an interesting choice. One day, with a holy thread he'd been given to tie around his neck. Instead, he tied it around his genitals, explaining that he hoped it might give him luck with women, not that he seemed to need any. In another shocking gesture, some might decry, he once urinated on a holy scroll. But the Lama spoke of his own teachings with joy. I am happy that I am a free yogi, so I grow more and more into my inner happiness. I can have sex with many women because I help them to go the path of enlightenment. Outwardly, I'm a fool, and inwardly, I live with a clear spiritual system. Outwardly, I enjoy wine, women, and song, and inwardly, I work for the benefit of all beings. Outwardly, I live for my pleasure, and inwardly, I do everything in the right moment. Outwardly, I'm a ragged beggar, and inwardly, a blissful Buddha. One day, when Drukpa Kunli visited the famous temple Ramoche, he came across a couple of monks out in the yard. When he asked what they were doing, they looked to the man standing over them and said simply, we are discussing metaphysics. Kunli said, I know a little of metaphysics. And he proceeded to pull down his pants and aim a large, loud fart directly into the monks' faces. When he stood, he looked at the pair and asked, What was first, the air or the sound and smell? But the monks were too angry to answer. They chased him from the yard, not thinking of the lesson Kunli had just imparted. How do we know the world and what can be known? In most teachings, external objects and events influence our consciousness. So where do you gain knowledge? Because of our consciousness, we can only ever view the world through our own thoughts and assumptions. We only have access to our conscious mind, and so the mind only ever perceives itself. There is mind and nothing else. To understand the world, you must understand your own mind above all. So which came first? The air or your perception of the fart? 
Like many of the world's masters, Drukpa Kunli was not widely revered in his lifetime, though he lived to the age of 115 spreading his teachings. Luckily, the Lama's words survive for us to this day in The Divine Madman, The Sublime Life and Songs of Drukpa Kunli. The Master of Truth himself said, If you think I have revealed any secrets, I apologize. If you think this is a medley of nonsense, just enjoy it. Such sentiments here I fully endorse. And those are some of the tellings of Drukpa Kunli. So uh, I had to bury my face in my hands a few times while you were talking. Because I, I, I so appreciate a sentiment of like, just think things are silly. Just, you know, have fun with things. Don't take it too seriously. But like, <laughs> like by the time he's like, oh, string, I'm going to tie it around my penis. Like. Some parts of it were just very goofy in a way that was like, okay, are you a 14-year-old boy writing a story about what you think a really cool, woke Buddhist monk would be? Um, So that was just, I had to laugh. But it takes, you know, in a serious but silly way, the way I think he would appreciate it. So I told a couple of men that I know about this story while I was researching it. Mm Mm-hmm. Every single one was really into it. Oh, duh, yeah. <laughs> and they're even more into it when I tell you some of the real-life history and culture that is about to be revealed. All right, all right, let's get into it. it. It's about to get even more exciting. Oh, my God, I don't know if I can handle it. Just kidding, I can. Please go on. Before I dive into some fascinating info, I want to say... Real quick, that the Culture Trip article, How and Why Bhutan Came to Worship the Phallus, by Sharanya Iyer, and the New York Times article, Phallus Art Brings Luck in Bhutan and Tourists Too, by Stephen Lee Myers, were particularly useful sources for this episode, and I cannot recommend them highly enough. This, along with all of the other articles and videos and sources that we use, are in our show notes. So... Miss Karma Choden, who wrote the 2014 book Phallus, Crazy Wisdom from Bhutan, says, In essence, the phallus represents the center of the male ego and not a celebration of sex. It reminds onlookers that if this force is harnessed properly, it will fuel productivity and creativity rather than wanton lust. But it's worth note that, according to Nidrep Zengpu, the executive director of the Journalist Association of Bhutan, the divine madman did not use his penis for many of his miraculous works, including expelling the demon, though that's how the legends have been muddled throughout time. He argues that the phallus symbol is more likely to come from pre-Buddhist pagan rituals rather than the Drukpa Kunli himself. I tell you these things because for those who want to see the Chimilakang Monastery in Lobesa, either to snap photos or to seek fertility blessings, 
Bhutan requires a tourist visa that costs $250 per day minimum. Oh my god. Yeah, in fact, Bhutan wasn't even open to tourism until 1974, and television and the internet were illegal in the country until 1999. So this meant that much of Bhutan, including Lobesa, was largely separated from American, European, and other cultures with large online and social media presences. Until that time, and even now, worldwide information and internet access in the country is not as widely accessible as it is in the U.S., which is true of many places around the globe. One PBS journalist describes Bhutan as a long-kept secret from the rest of the world. So I'm going to take you guys on a micro-tour of Lobesa and parts of Bhutan. So nowadays, when an English speaker enters the village of Lobesa, they'll find a penis-shaped sign that says welcome, and a sign that explains that penises, quote, symbolize the discomfort that society expresses when facing the truth. They will come across the phallus bar and the phallus cafe, as well as more than a few shops selling carved wooden penises and similar iconography. In fact, for an area that was once a largely agrarian society, increasingly often the village makes money from the rent businesses pay for restaurants and artisan shops because of the tourist industry. So, while there, visitors might choose to head to another nearby monastery called the Tango Goemba, which is the guardian of a thangka, or a religious painting, that Jurkpa Kunli is also said to have urinated on. Was there, like, a reason he just wanted to urinate on a bunch of things? Was it because it was like, you shouldn't believe in these things and they're pointless, pee on them, and see, you should be free? I am not a Buddhist, and I don't claim to know very much about it, but from the videos that I listened to from Buddhist sources, it seems to me that it was kind of an idea of the... Physical expressions are not the true meaning. Okay. Okay. That was involved in there somewhere. And also taking this seriously doesn't make you more or less enlightened. And I don't mean seriously as in believing in it. I mean seriously as in being very strict. Right. And creating a lot of rules. Thinking that the strictness of your, your actions implies the strength of your belief. And I also think that there was an element of you don't have to deprive yourself of happiness to reach enlightenment. I mean, for all I know, because again, I know nothing, he wanted to have sex with a lot of women and used that to his advantage. I, I don't know. But from the Buddhist videos that I listened to, I listened to a whole interpretation of what is called the metaphysical fart because when i first heard that story i i thought he was disrespecting them well yeah i think most people would think he's disrespecting them right but there is more to it than that according to the teachings about 
the external versus the internal world. And because he is a master, everything that he does is supposed to be interpreted as divine wisdom, I think. I think. And I I think that's also partially how his penis got the nickname. It's an, like an aspect of his divine wisdom. If he was a 14-year-old boy, that nickname would be his online username. <laughs> Look me in the I mean, eye and tell me I'm wrong. I won't. <laughs> you couldn't get it past the censors, though. And I think, again, that's a metaphor of the controlling and the fun. Why can't his username be Flaming Thunderbolt of Wisdom? But his username could be Flaming Thunderbolt of Wisdom. That in and of itself. You know what? I bet there is someone whose username is Flaming Thunderbolt of Wisdom. I really want... Is it disrespectful to want, like, a t-shirt of that? Because I do. You know, this was kind of my first exploration of a Buddhist myth. So I'm not super clued into the ends and the beginnings of that. But I like to imagine maybe he would wear that shirt. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know him. I can only... Listen, we can get real metaphysical. I can only perceive him through my own consciousness. So, in fact, all of the world is my own consciousness. So whatever I perceive about him is my truth. I am having flashbacks to my philosophy class my freshman year of college. I did not do well in that philosophy class. I think I might have done okay. Okay, so back to my tour. I know this is a podcast, and it inherently lacks visuals. I would like to say that images that I found from Bhutan and this area surrounding this temple show building after building with artistic representations of the male genitalia. Many paintings larger than a person is tall. Some penises are painted in any number of flesh tones, others in shades like bright red and blue. Some are surrounded by flowers. Some have flowing ribbons to reference the story of him tying this holy thread around his penis. Still others integrated penises into other objects like necklaces or human face sculptures. They are put over doorways to ward off evil and mounted in fields like scarecrows. Many are ejaculating. All are erect. And that is why this area has become such a tourist destination. Miss Karma Choden also says, Stories of Bhutan's engagement with the phallus shed light on traditions and lifestyle that make Bhutan one of the happiest places on earth. So it makes sense that one tourist called Lobesa Bhutan the Disneyland of penises because Disneyland is the American version of the happiest place on earth. Yeah, that's not wrong. But... Lobesa is more than a photo op for American tourists, and it is more than a place to purchase penis keychains, which are there. I saw them 
in a store from a picture. Tenpa Renchen, the deputy headman of the village, who is not pleased with the modern exploitation of something with deep religious significance, says, The divine madman has much more to offer than just a phallus. Yeah, he's got a fart to start. Tracy! (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. Obviously, his teachings are important, and it makes sense that he has a lot of wisdom to offer around the idea of believing deeply in something, but not letting that belief deprive you of exploring what it is to be something good in the world and to experience what is good about the world. And also be inherently hyper-masculine, kind of in a traditional sense. Okay, so I talked to a couple men, not in person, we're still in quarantine, and I showed them pictures of all of these buildings, which truly have murals of penises everywhere. And one of them said oh, all of them are gay, which I thought was particularly ridiculous. And I actually convinced him to come over to my side of thinking because boys and men in modern times draw penises on everything. Everything. Straight men, gay men, asexual men, maybe. Just, it's not a homoerotic choice. So, luckily, I brought him over to the side of the angels on that one. I could go on and on and on about the the fragile masculinity. I mean, I have a friend who got called gay as as meant to be an insult online while he's playing video games uh, with people. So, he plays World of Warcraft, and it was was people, I think someone in a guild that was playing with his was like, you use a loofah? Like, that's, you must be gay. He was like, yeah, I guess... Taking care of my skin is definitely means I, I must like men. Like it's just the the like imagine oh my god. All the skincare that has to be put in black bottles to get men to use it so it seems masculine and intense. Yeah, how dare you sunscreen that's so gay. It was interesting though, because the guy that I was talking to, he's a good guy. I never would have expected that thought from him and The second I started talking to him about it, he very quickly realized that that was a very internalized, right, homophobic thought. So that was kind of an interesting moment for me, especially because it was with someone who is in a place that they can admit when they're wrong and try to be better, which was really cool, but fascinating. I also talked with a different friend about, you know, we have the Washington Monument. <laughs> yeah. Which, am I correct? Isn't that based on a sculpture in Egypt? An Egyptian obelisk, yeah. Yeah, okay, so we have a penis sculpture based on a penis sculpture based on penis. Well, I don't know that a, an Egyptian obelisk is necessarily a penis sculpture. No, you're right, but I would say that there is an element of it that is very uh, related to masculine views of themselves. Yeah, it's phallic. 
<laughs> Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. I was like, I've used that word how many times in this podcast and I still couldn't think of it. So then the other interesting conversation that I had <laughs> while I was writing this, I was uh, lamenting uh, to a friend <laughs> that I was just saying penis and phallus so much. Mm-hmm. I needed more synonyms, but many of the synonyms that we have for various types of genitalia are vulgar slurs, quote unquote. Um, And he said, well, why don't you just use the term dick? And I said, no, I think that falls under the heading of vulgar slur. And he showed me the definition (laughs) online. I want to say it was from the Oxford Dictionary. Ooh, maybe it was Merriam-Webster, but... One is, you know, vulgar slur for a penis, but the other definition was, quote, anything at all. Oh, oh my God, just anything at all? Those were the words, because dick can be used to describe anything at all. Think of all the words in modern colloquialisms that we replace with the word dick. Huh. I'd never really thought of it that way. I don't know why that struck me so much, but I love language. Oh, me too. If you love language, you have to check out the Illusionist podcast. Ooh. Oh, my God. So good. One of my favorite podcasts of all time. I found this podcast when I went to PodCon two years ago, or maybe it was last year. Um, And she had... Like, I should have known about this podcast beforehand, but she did a live show. It's Helen Zaltzman um, hosts The Illusionist. That's A-L-L-U-Genist. I don't, can't spell on the fly, but Allusionist. And it is all about language and how language changes. And she has all these different topics and she brings in experts. And truly, it's one of my favorite podcasts. I get giddy when I see a new episode is released. And it is all about how she used to be a stickler about language and she's learned how fluid language is and to appreciate that fluidity. So I was telling Tracy this the other day and she didn't believe me, but Tracy provides the best recommendations. When she recommends makeup to me, I believe her. When she tells me about books or podcasts or art or plants, I always believe her and you should too. <laughs> and I'm, I will work on convincing her to do a Fan Art Friday for this podcast. Oh, you don't have to Instagram. ask me twice. I- I just need to find a way to artistically represent what Helen Zaltzman and The Illusionist means to me. She's so good. And she's so funny, you guys. She's so clever and funny. And thank you, Rowan. I appreciate that you like my recommendations. Oh, of course. I'm kind of mad at you for not telling me this one sooner. I have no idea why it didn't occur to me. (laughs) I think I I just assumed you already knew about it. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a thing. Aren't we one brain? All right, so that is my story on lust that is mainly centered around male sexuality because I just couldn't do it. I've done The Furies. I've done Lilith. I've done... Lenanshi, yeah. But I just felt like I did so many women associated with succubi in a row. And so often when we think of stories of lust, oh my gosh, everyone I know recommended succubi to me. 
Really? I yes. only asked a couple people and almost instantaneously the Iliad was brought up and I just went with it. I got the Iliad recommended to me a lot and yeah. uh, that wasn't going to happen. So <laughs> so I found this again at the 11th hour because I was going to do a different story and I'm not going to tell anybody what it is because I'm going to do it later. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I thought about with the second half of the Iliad. It's like, ooh, I can save the story of Achilles and all of that for later. <laughs> I'm going to do it. All right. Okay. So that's going to do it for the story part. But before we end today, Rowan, can you tell me something good? Can I? Um, what, it, it, it is so funny to me that this, like, surprises you every week. <laughs> you would think I'd think of something in advance, and I... I actively all week long try to think of... It actually has helped me. I actively all week long try to think of, like, what my something good is, which makes me appreciate all the little things going on in my life. I do before the day we record, but by the time we record, I always forget. Oh, I remember what my something good is. Mm. Thank you for buying me a moment, Tracy. Anytime. Getting put on the spot like that scares all the goodness out of me. Okay. <laughs> um, I bought myself an inversion table. <gasps> oh, my God. I know. You have to tell me. what. Have you gotten it yet? Oh, it's here. What's it like? It's here. And when it came, I was running out the door to come to my apartment to record with you for something else and Tyler set it up while I was away and I came back to a set up inversion table that's the best gift of all I know anyone setting up like anyone building furniture for me that's the worst part not the worst part one of the worst parts about quarantine is a friend of mine either genuinely loves putting furniture together or just says he loves it but for all of our friends he always comes and puts our furniture together and I've had to put together two different pieces of furniture together like I've had to put together two different pieces of furniture since quarantine started, and I hate it, and I get overwhelmed, and it makes me miserable. So to come home to a built inversion table, what a gift. I know. He's a good friend, by the way. I know who you're talking about. He's a really good human. Yes, he is. Thank you, Liam. He also helped me set up my new microphone because he likes audio. Okay, cool. We're saying it. Liam, you're the best. (laughs) Thank you, Liam. So Tyler set it up for me, which was so beyond kind. (laughs) It lives at his apartment because his apartment has more space than mine does. (laughs) Because I have audition space and podcast space. So it lives over in his inordinately large bedroom. And it is so nice. I got one that's very squishy. It came with a removable hot pad that I actually mostly leave at my work desk so I can have it on my back. It is adjustable. I make myself go in it for at least 10 minutes, not upside down for exactly 10 minutes, but off and on for 10 minutes listening to an audiobook every day because that's the closest I can get right now to meditation. Mm, Do what you got to do. Yeah, there could be improvement on the meditation front in the future, but right now this is where we're at. Uh, And it is the best. It has helped my grumpy back which was getting grumpy because it's quarantine and I mostly just sit at a desk researching myths and the closer I just get closer and closer to the computer screen and more hunched the more excited I get because I'm trying to insert myself into the knowledge (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god, relatable. So this inversion table is a something good, and Tyler setting it up was a very something good. Oh, can I do another mini something good that goes along with the theme? Yeah. Can I have more than one? Can more than one good thing happen to you in a week? Okay. Weirdly, I think it can. <laughs> Odd. Okay. So I also ordered... This is my week of packages coming. I also ordered for my car. My car, which I love more than life itself. I ordered two license plate frames from an artist on Etsy. And the artist is called AstroTurf. Astrological Turf? Astral, okay. The artist is called Astral Turf. Like astral plane, astral turf. Yeah, that's really clever. Astral turf. Yes, and they make laser etched license plate frames. And I got them in black to match my car where it goes and the front license plate frame because you have to have both in california says may the bridges i burn light the way and the back license plate frame has two d20s on it and says roll for initiative (laughs) oh that's so cool so hopefully too many nerds don't see that and try to drag race me (laughs) That's true. It could be a gift or a curse. I kind of want a nerd to pull up and look your license plate frame, but I don't imagine that happening. No, probably not. But they just arrived just before we started recording, so I'm very excited. I'm excited. I want to see pictures of it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'll try to post them on the Instagram if I remember. So not that buying things has to be a something good, but I treated myself to a self-care thing and also a fun present. So that was nice. Tracy? Yes? Tell me something good. Okay. So my something good this week um, was that I was in my kitchen and Jamie or Tim had brought in some packages that were on the front step and I was looking through them and one of them was for me and it was from Amazon. And... I am someone who will order stuff from Amazon and then literally immediately forget. And then it's like a present whenever I get my Amazon package. So I was like, oh, what did I order? And I open it up and I picked up this book and I was like, I, did I just wake up in the middle of the night and order a book? What, what did I do? And then a a little slip fell out and it was a present from Rowan. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad you're talking about this. I ordered you a present, too. Oh, my God. I screamed. I immediately ran and texted Rowan and said, I know my something good this week. Um, So she sent me the book, Circe, that she had mentioned in one of her previous episodes. And I am so excited to read it. Tracy, you are going to flip your top when you read this book. And I really want you to listen to the audiobook, but I know how you roll. You needed a book book, and I know you want a hardback book. So we had to do it. (laughs) So I'm so grateful. I've been reading books on my Kindle, which I I love. I love my Kindle, except that it – I don't know if it's, like, got water in it or something. It – is on the fritz. So I'll be reading and it mm. flips forward like four pages and then it, it won't let me tap to move around. And so it's been a pain. So to as much as I love that I can just download whatever books I want and read them, 
it'll just be really nice to have a physical book. And I'm torn between like trying to read it now sporadically when I have time and waiting a couple months to when I go to the beach where I know I'll read it in like a day and a half and just really binge it at the beach. And I think I'm going to save it so that I can really indulge in it and relax and enjoy it while I'm at the beach. I'm happy for you, but now I have to know not to spoil it because I just listened to it on audiobook because I love this in audiobook form and I am listening to it for the second time. Wow. I know, which I think says something because that's it's a it's dedication to go through a book not once but twice. I am really excited, really, really excited to read it and I'm gonna I'm gonna wait and enjoy it so you'll have to keep your spoilers but it's also vaguely historical so also i'm an idiot when it comes to spoilers my friends are always worried about spoiling things for me and if i don't have context for something it's in one ear out the other you know what this won't spoil it i will say this for anyone who's interested in the book that this fictional telling centered on cersei links a lot of greek mythology together in a genius way and i will say nothing more about it (laughs) (laughs) so next week we are covering death gods i am so excited about this one rowan knows i have strong thoughts about that death death gods get a bad rap throughout history yeah, I think this next episode is very much your episode. And uh, I I have a story that I really hope that you choose from your list, but I think you probably won't. <laughs> oh, now I'm curious. Now I'm curious I, which one we you We can chat about it, not on podcast, when we will reveal things. <laughs> yes. And um, we are still looking out for your ghost stories. So we'll hopefully, I think... We might have a couple to read for our next episode. I will... I think I think we got a couple, Tracy, so... Uh, yeah, so we'll either read them potentially next episode where we might save it and do like a little mini episode of all your stories that you send in. So whether it's ghost stories or just a really cool experience or um, any emotional connections you have to any stories you've we've told so far, send them in and we can read them out back to you. Yeah, we would really love to have enough to kind of do a mini episode where we dramatically tell you your own stories. But either way, the couple that I know we have will will get read because I'm excited about them. Me too. The last thing we want to do before closing it out is read to you guys one of our favorite reviews that we've gotten. So know that if you leave a review, there's a good chance we'll read it on the podcast. So make it as funny and clever as you can. So my one of my favorite reviews so far <laughs> is from Imagine 8 Changes. They said, a bookish but brazen podcast signed me up. From the very first moment, with its fantastical intro, this podcast stands out in a sea of many. Each episode is clearly meticulously crafted and planned out, which makes the experience both informative and entertaining. Plus, it's created by two lovely humans, so support them. (laughs) I am tickled that we are perceived as lovely. Oh, yeah. And I love being described as bookish and brazen. Oof, give it to me. I want I want an embroidery hanging up that says that. 
I happen to know someone who embroiders, and their name is Tracy Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I have the time to do that. Someone just make it and give it to me, please. (laughs) (laughs) Or I could pay good money for someone who has even more talent than me to do it, is what I should do. Yeah, I'm sure we can find someone. We love Etsy. Oh, I love Etsy. I just bought uh, a present for my sister for our shared birthday. We're twins. Um, on Etsy today. Oh my gosh, your birthday is coming up and it's still going to be quarantine. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. So please leave reviews um, anywhere that you listen and we will go through and pick our favorite ones and read them out. So thank you. Was it Imagine 8? Imagine 8 Changes. Thank you, Imagine 8 Changes, for that very complimentary and clever review. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do. And we read the reviews because we need moral support. Yeah, we need validation. (laughs) All righty. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stories grow with the telling. So tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power. <laughs>